You're listening to a special guest speaker on the Calvary Brighton podcast. What's up, everybody? Good morning. Yeah, so like my dad said, we're going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through 1 Samuel. And I have to warn you, today's chapter is very tricky, I'll say. Um, If you guys haven't read the Bible all the way through, you might not even know about this story, like at all. Um, It's very confusing, very obscure, super under the radar. Today, we're going to be talking about David and Goliath. I know. So we're going through it together, okay? So I'll be here the whole time. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> let's go ahead and open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And while you guys are flipping there, I want to remind you guys the genre of the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, the genre is called a narrative. And that's just a funny Bible word for story. That's a story. And so how do we read this biblical story? Well, there's two important steps we must do. The first is we need to understand the context. We need to understand the context, the historical context, the literary context. What was the world like back then? This book was written 4,000 years ago. A lot has changed. What was society like? What was culture like? Today we're talking about a war. What was war like? We need to understand all of that as our first step. First step is understand the context. Second step is we need to put ourselves right in the shoes of the main character. If you were there, now that you have the context, if you were there, what would you do? What would you decide? How would you feel? Would you do the same thing? Would you feel the same? same? Would you feel differently? Understand that. Try to sympathize and understand what the main character is going through after you have all the context. So that's the second step. So with today's uh, chapter in specific, uh, specifically, I think David and Goliath, a lot of you would probably assume, well, David's the main character, right? It's David and Goliath. And I think that that's the way it's been preached a lot, almost as like a classic underdog story, right? Come from behind, feel good, like the little guy gets the big guy, almost like the karate kid, you know? And it, we think like, I can be that. I'm the karate kid. That's me. And I think today I want to try to challenge you guys to maybe look at this familiar story with a fresh set of eyes. Maybe look at it new. Look at it in a way that you haven't looked at it before. Instead of looking at David as the main character, I want to encourage you guys to look at the Israelites as the main character. Try to understand them. How they, what have you gone through that's maybe similar to how they're feeling? I want you to try to sympathize and put yourself into the shoes of the Israelites. And the reason I'm asking you to do that is because the book of Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel, the book of Samuel was written during the Babylonian exile, the Babylonian exile, and it was written to the Israelites. This was a time where the Israelites would have been asking themselves questions like, where did things go wrong? What happened? Like, how did we get here? When they would read this, they wouldn't picture themselves as David. They're Israelites, and they would put themselves into the shoes of the Israelites. And so because of that, I want to encourage you guys to try to do the same thing. So throughout this whole story, just try to, try to imagine the Israelites are the main character, and you're putting yourself right in their shoes. So let's start with 1 Samuel chapter, uh, chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, in a camp between Soko and Azekah, in Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered. 
and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And and his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you not come out to drop for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So let's get some historical context. So despite a couple years of peace, the Philistines are once again about to get into a battle with the Israelites. So far, we're only 17 chapters into 1 Samuel, and this is the third battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. The third battle in less than a generation's time. The last one was in chapter 13. The battle before that was in chapter 4. But in less than a generation span, three battles between these two nations. Now, let's get, again, let's get some like, context about what was happening historically and culturally. This type of battle was called a representative battle. That was the name for it, a representative battle. And what a representative battle was is, and they were very common in Canaanite and Egyptian culture. And what they were was that there'd be one or more soldiers who would represent one army or group And they would fight like an equal amount of soldiers representing the other army or the other group. And whoever won, if it was like one one versus one, whoever won, won the war. That's how it worked. They would represent the entire armies, the respective armies. Now, the reasons that this this type of battle was so common was for two reasons. Um, One was a practical reason and another was more of a spiritual reason. So the practical reason is that it just would reduce bloodshed. It was just, it was very practical. And considering this is the third battle in less than a generation's time between these two nations, that likely would have played a big role as to why a representative battle was chosen here. But the second, and I think more important reason, the spiritual reason was that, quote, so that the the divine may be expressed. What that means is, like, we have two mountains, soldiers on one mountain, Philistine soldiers on the other, all eyes of every soldier would be on the battle. The battle, the, the one versus one. Everybody would be looking at it, looking at them. And they would know that these soldiers were not just representing the Philistines and the Israelites, but they were also representing their respective gods. The question, everyone who's there, every soldier, their question on their minds would be, whose God would prevail? Whose God would reign supreme? Whose God was truly powerful? Whose God was truly divine? Who would win? That was the question on the minds of every single soldier there. So it's here that we're introduced to Goliath, the guy representing the Philistines. 
He was their best. He was the best representation of a Philistine. He's called a champion, a word that just means he was battle-tested. He was a veteran of war. He was an expert at killing, a master of bringing death and destruction to his enemies. This isn't his first rodeo. And he's really big. He's, it, most of your translations, including my, my translation, would say that he was six cubits tall. Um, most likely, he was four and a half cubits tall. Um, according to the Septuagint, Dead Sea Scrolls, and Josephus, they all say that he was four cubits tall. But that's still really tall. That's about six foot ten. Six foot ten. That's the height of LeBron James. <laughs> That's tall. So you have this guy who's a veteran of war, an expert at killing, an expert at bringing death to his enemies, and he happens to be as big as LeBron. And he's fully equipped, fully decked out with armor and weapons. His armor and his weaponry would have been very typical for a Philistine soldier at that time. Um, He would have had a spear for getting his enemies at a long distance so he could throw his spear at them. He would have a sharpened, curved, single-edged sword for close combat situations. And his helmet would have been huge. His bronze helmet would have covered most of his head, forehead, and sides of his face. In total, his armor would have probably weighed around 125 pounds. 125 pounds. And actually, believe it or not, we have a picture of what it would look like for Goliath to put on all this armor, struggling under the weight of all this armor. It's it's really crazy that we actually have this picture, but let me show it to you guys real quick. Yeah, it's, I, for some reason, the picture makes him seem a little shorter than how I pictured. I don't know, just cameras were different back then, I guess. But, <laughs> but this is Goliath, you know? I hope the picture helps you visualize it. But this is Goliath, huge. He's a killing machine, an expert, decked out full on with armor and weapons. Now the question remains, Who is going to represent the Israelites? That's the question Goliath's asking. That's the question that the Israelites are asking themselves. Who is the best representation of not only the nation of Israel, but also Israel's God? Who is it going to be? Well, luckily for Israel, they had a giant of their own, Saul. We know in chapter 9, a couple chapters ago, that he's described as a man who, quote, from his shoulders upward, is taller than any of the other Israelites. He's a giant in his own right. And we know that just a chapter before, chapter 8, verse 20, he was chosen specifically to go before the Israelites and, quote, fight their battles. He was chosen to be the man for the job. He looked the part. He was a giant of his own. He was the perfect fit. He was an equal match. But he's not fighting. He's sitting on the sidelines. It says that him and all of Israel are afraid, are greatly afraid and dismayed, it says. Now, this Hebrew word for afraid, it's very important to understand what this means because this word, it it could mean to fear, but also it's translated as to revere and even to fear God. To revere and to fear God, this word is used commonly in the Bible to describe how we ought to fear God. This word has divine overtones, has divine overtones. The Israelites weren't just afraid. They weren't just scared. They had a holy, divine fear of Goliath that should have only been reserved for God. 
They had a holy fear of Goliath. Now, at this point, I remember, we need to put ourselves, put ourselves into the shoes of the Israelites. They're the main character. We need to understand what they're going through. So maybe we've had this sim- similar fear before. Maybe we've never seen Goliath before, but maybe we have a similar fear of sin. Maybe we know that sin has been defeated, but we still see there's no way that we're ever going to find victory over it. Maybe we've told ourselves that this is something that's going to stick with us every day of our lives. Maybe you've said things to yourself like, God can't help me with this sin. Yeah, sure, God can save me from all the sins, but not this one. Maybe you've told yourself, I'll never beat this. This sin will be with me forever. Maybe you've said, this sin has and always will defeat me. If you've thought that to yourself in the past, or if you're currently thinking that, you can relate to the kind of fear, that fear that makes sin seem divinely powerful. You can relate to how the Israelites are feeling right now. You can understand what they're going through. So let's continue on in verse 12. Verse 12 through 22. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of of, uh, Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul into battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all of the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. So this passage begins and we immediately, right off the bat, learn three things about David. Three things. And these things, are, these three things are important. The first thing we learn is one, he's the eighth son. He's the eighth born. Second, we learn that he's the youngest. Not only is the eighth born, but he's the youngest. Third, we learn that he's taking care of his father's sheep. Now, these things may not seem very significant on the surface, but I'll explain to you and we'll, di- we'll, we'll dig down deep together and figure out why these things are actually really important. Culturally, during David's day, being the firstborn son was very important, was very important. From the day that the firstborn son was born, they were being prepared to one day take over the family, to one day take over the patriarchy, almost in today's terms, to one day take over the family business. From the day that they were born, they were given double portions of everything, double presents, double everything, So that one day, when the time came, they would be best prepared to fill their father's shoes. In a lot of ways, their firstborn son wasn't just the son who happened to be born first. He was an extension of the father. 
He was an extension of the Father. He was seen as very important. Now, every subsequent son, every son born after, the second, third, fourth, fifth, they were seen as second valuable, third valuable, fourth valuable. Now, some of you are like, hey, that's how I view my kids, right? (laughs) Just kidding. But it's different. It's different here, you know? They were, David was seen as the least valuable, the least important, the most replaceable, the least significant. When we see him, he's not even being trained to take over the patriarchy at all. He's not even being trained to take over the family business. He's not learning the tips and tricks of the trade. When we see him, he's just the shepherd. And we learn in verse 20, that's a job that could have been hired out. They could have hired someone to do that. Now, culturally, to try to put this in today's terms, it would be similar to maybe a young adult who never moves out from their parents' house and doesn't really have a career at all. We wouldn't look at them and look down upon them necessarily, but we also wouldn't look at them and say, you have all the skills you need to lead this nation. <laughs> That's similar to how David would have been looked, like, looked at. Yeah, it's not his fault he was eighth born, you know, that's not, he didn't do anything to deserve that. But at the same time, it's like, no one would have picked him to lead the nation of Israel. He's not exactly king material. He is the least valuable, the least significant, the least important, the most replaceable. In his own family alone, there's seven dudes who are a better fit at doing literally anything than him. That's how David would have been seen. It's also important to remember with some literary context that in Eastern literature, which the Bible and the book of 1 Samuel is, it is a piece of Eastern literature, they're not necessarily always written, written in chronological order. They're not necessarily written in this happened first, then this, then this, then this. It, they're not necessarily written like how a history book's written. Rather, the divinely inspired author puts the, th- puts the events in the order that they are in order to make a point or to highlight a truth a truth that we are supposed to receive, a truth that God is trying to highlight through his word. And so because of that, it is very significant that this chapter, the chapter about David and Goliath, happens directly after last week's chapter, where David is anointed to be the next king. That's not on accident. That's on purpose. David, when he was anointed to be next king, that was a big deal. He was anointed Remember who, who came and anointed him? Samuel. The whole book's named after the guy. He was very important. He was the last judge. He was their priest. He was the nation's prophet. Everybody knew who Samuel was. Everybody. And not only was it just Samuel, but Samuel was anointing David to be king on behalf of God. On behalf of God Almighty. This was a big deal. Remember, who was in the room when this happened? Who all saw this happen? The prophet Samuel, on behalf of God Almighty, anoint David to be the next king. It was his father and his brothers. They were the ones in the room who saw it happen. Despite being anointed by Samuel on behalf of God to be the next king, right in front of the eyes of Jesse, David's father, David, in the eyes of David's father, David was nothing more, and he was seen as nothing more than a shepherd. He was still just as replaceable as ever, just as least as significant as ever, least important, least valuable. He was still the eighth born son. That's who David was. 
So let's continue in verse 23 through 27. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. So David's in the middle of catching up with his brothers. He's like, here's your lunch, bros. Uh, And right in the middle of catching up, talking with his brothers, Goliath comes up and once again taunts the Israelites, challenges the Israelites. And once again, the Israelites are afraid, it says. That same exact Hebrew word as before. The word that means that the Israelites were once again struck with a divine fear of Goliath, a holy fear of Goliath. And so David then starts overhearing the soldiers talk about what would happen to the man who kills Goliath. The one who's brave enough, the one who's courageous enough, what would be given to this man? What would be their reward? And so they're talking and they they say that the man who kills Goliath will get three things. Riches, they'd be married to Saul's daughter, and they'll be, their father's house would be free. And I'll explain what that means. I think we all know what riches is. That's just cold, hard cash, right? No con, you don't need to explain that one. That one's pretty self-explanatory. But why is it important to be married to Saul's daughter? That's important because they're not just being married to Saul's daughter, they're being married into the king's family. That's a political position. That's a position that comes with a lot of power. Power. Now, and then their father's house would be free. What that means is them and their father's house won't get taxed. And I think we all, I think we all know the benefit of that, right? So the, with that comes generational wealth, generational prosperity. So not only did these Israelite soldiers fear Goliath with the fear that they should have only reserved for fearing God with, but the reasons that they would risk their lives, put their lives on the line, to take a bold step of faith into the thing that they'd be willing to live and to die for wasn't God. It was money, power, and prosperity. Those were their gods. Money, power, and prosperity. Those were the things, when it came down to it, that they would be willing to risk their lives for. They would be willing to take a step of faith for. Not God. Money, power, and prosperity. So let's continue in verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. So Eliab, the firstborn son, the one who was rejected first to be anointed the next king, 
the one who was told from the day that he was born, here's a double portion of everything. One day you will be the leader of this family. You are the best equipped. You are the best son, the most valuable, the most important. You are the best. Here's Eliab who sees his youngest brother. I'm sure he's just full of jealousy. Full of jealousy over what God was doing in David's life. So full of this jealousy, seeing what God was doing over David's life, he just couldn't have it and he needs to put David back in his place. Knock him down a couple pegs. He reminds David, he's like, you might be around here talking to the, talking to the soldiers. You may be here acting like you belong. But we both know that you'll always be a shepherd. You'll always be the least important. We could have hired somebody to do your job. I like that he goes out of his way, not just to say you're a shepherd, but he's, you're a shepherd of a few sheep. <laughs> you're not even a good shepherd. You're the least important and you're still bad at it. He's knocking David down a few pegs. You'll only ever be a shepherd and nothing more. Just like Jesse, David's father, to Eliab, David was nothing more and not a, not a little bit more valuable than a shepherd. Let's continue in verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And, D and Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine and to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. And David, but David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep from his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and it took the lamb from, a flock, from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. If he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and I struck him and I killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So we begin this section and it says, when the words that David spoke were heard, they were repeated before Saul. What words? Well, the words found back in verse 26, where David says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David didn't actually volunteer for anything. He didn't actually volunteer to fight Goliath. All he had, he just had a healthy fear of God and an accurate view of who Goliath really was. And who was Goliath? He was just an uncircumcised Philistine. Now, why does David go out of his way to say that Goliath was uncircumcised? The reason that he says that is because David is highlighting that Goliath has not made a covenant with God like he has, like the Israelites have. God is not with Goliath. Goliath wasn't this unbeatable giant. He was a godless man defying God Almighty. That's who he really was. He was just a man. A man versus God is nothing. But now David actually volunteers. He says, I'll do it. I'll fight Goliath. I'll do it but he's immediately turned down by Saul, the king himself. Not this time, not because he's a shepherd, but because he's too young. You're just a boy. You're not a soldier. You're just a boy. David, you don't fit the mold. You don't look the part. 
It makes zero sense to send a kid into a battle of any kind, but let alone in a fight against Goliath. You kidding me? Like, you're probably past your curfew. Curfew, get home, you know? Like, what are you doing here? But David responds, he says, you understand, the Lord has saved me from the paw of a lion, the paw of a bear. He will save me from the hand of this Philistine. And again, some more literary context. In Hebrew, there's actually no such thing as a word for paw. It doesn't exist. A more word-for-word translation would say, the hand of a lion, the hand of a bear. Hand and paw, they're the same word. And the reason that that's important is because hand was commonly associated with and even used for the same word as power. No pun intended, but hand and power go hand in hand. So this word for hand, and again, this was something that was culturally understood, culturally understood across all of the Canaanite region. I'll give you an example. Earlier in 1 Samuel, we learned this probably about a month ago, the Ark of God was captured from Israel and placed in a Philistine temple of a god named Dagon. The Philistines go and check on the Ark, and they see Dagon, his idol, is bowing down before the Ark, and his hands have been cut off. The reason that's important is because that was God saying that Dagon doesn't have power. Dagon doesn't have any power. God has the power. And so with that in mind, we can understand that David is saying that the power of the Lord is greater than the power of any man, any animal, let alone this uncircumcised Philistine. The power of the Lord is greater. So, Let's continue on in verse 38, and we're going to see that God is going to choose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Verse 38, it says, When Saul clothed David with his armor, he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. So David approaches Goliath with rocks and his shepherd's pouch. Most likely this was the same shepherd's pouch he used to carry his brother's lunch with. He's got a couple rocks and a lunchbox. He doesn't even have armor on. Like all he's missing is a backpack and you would think he took a wrong turn on his way to school got a couple rocks and a lunchbox. And Goliath is like, what is this? I was expecting an equal match. I was expecting a challenge. Somebody who at least was like a soldier and you come to me with a kid. A kid with a couple rocks and a lunchbox. Is this some kind of sick joke? There's no honor in killing a kid. And so at this point, David's enemy, his king, his brother, and his father have all seemingly doubted him. That's what it seems like they did. But here's the thing. 
I mean, they've all pretty much told him, you're just a shepherd boy. You're just a young shepherd. But the thing is, is they weren't wrong. None of them were lying. They were all, they weren't wrong. It was true. David was a shepherd. He was the eighth born. He was the least important. He was the least valuable, the least significant. All of it. It was true. They didn't make it up. They weren't lying. That's a fact. He was a shepherd. He also was a boy. It's not like, hey, I just have a young face, but I'm really older. No, he was 13. He was a boy. They weren't lying. He also wasn't a soldier. He actually had no business being there. He should have just delivered the lunch and gone home. He wasn't a soldier. He had no business being there. And lastly, he didn't stand a chance against Goliath. He didn't. Guys, this isn't a movie. This is real life. This really happened. This isn't the karate kid. Okay? Like, Goliath is a trained killer. He's a master of bringing death and destruction to his enemies. Imagine, like a Navy SEAL, a trained killer, a master with the size and the abilities of LeBron James fighting against a 13-year-old boy who hangs out with animals all day. Who do you think's going to win? Like this boy maybe works at like PetSmart or something. Who do you think's going to win? The PetSmart employee or the Navy SEAL the size of LeBron? Like, let's get real, guys. This is real. This really happened. Like, if we had to put money on it, there's not a person in here who would put money on David. Not a single person. It would be foolish to think that David actually stood a chance against Goliath. It goes beyond any type of rational thinking to actually have any hope in David at this moment. So, Goliath finishes his remarks. What does David say in response? Let's find out in verse 45 through 47. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies to the, of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and a spear for the, Lord is the, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hand. I want to tell you a couple of things David didn't say. He didn't say, no, Goliath, you don't understand. I am a soldier. I belong here. I'm a warrior. I, I, I'm supposed to be here. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, no, Goliath, I am old enough. I promise. He doesn't say that. He says, no, no, Goliath, you don't understand. I am more than a shepherd. I am more than the eighth born son. I am important. I am significant. I am valuable. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even say, no, Goliath, God doesn't look at my outward appearances. He looks at my heart. <laughs> he doesn't say that either. He doesn't try to defend himself. He almost seems to respond by saying, you know what? I am those things. That's true. I am a boy. I am a shepherd. I'm not a soldier and I don't stand a chance. But there's something you don't know, Goliath, that your battle's not with me. Your battle is with the Lord of hosts. Your battle's not with me. 
Your battle is with the Lord. So they finished their, finished their speeches. Let's see what happens. The battle's about to start. Let's read verse 48 to the end. When the Philistine arose and came near to, to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone, stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with the sling and with the stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There is no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistine, when the Philistine saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on their way from Shereem as far as Gath to Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. And he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son this boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Sure enough, the Lord brings victory over Goliath. You may have heard this story as David and Goliath or David versus Goliath, but really that's not what it was. It was God versus Goliath. It was God and Goliath. And God was just doing what he always does. In 1 Corinthians 1, 27, God was just simply using, quote, the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That's what God was doing. If you saw a 13-year-old PetSmart employee kill a Navy SEAL with the size of LeBron James, your first thought wouldn't be, wow, that kid has a few tricks up his sleeve. You wouldn't think that. You wouldn't think, wow, that kid sure knows how to use a slingshot. You wouldn't think that. You would understand immediately that something else must be going on. This doesn't make sense. Something otherworldly is happening. Because under no circumstances should the LeBron James-sized Navy SEAL ever lose. He shouldn't. God was the one who brought victory over Goliath. It was God all along. A lot of times, I think we've maybe imagined ourselves as David. Maybe we've even heard sermons and that we were told that we are David. That if we just have enough faith and if we believe enough, we can overcome anything. We can overcome that Goliath in your life. Maybe you were even told that the Goliath is your health, finances, job, family, or whatever else it may be. But I'm sorry to tell you, that's not what this story is about. That's not the most accurate reading of this scripture. The story is, you're not David. I'm not David. You're not David. None of us are David. We're the scared Israelite. We're the Israelite who is so fearful of sin, fearing sin with the same fear that we should be fearing God with, letting it rule our lives. We're the scared Israelite living our lives day to day, living for pointless, earthly, temporary things like power, money, and prosperity. 
that was us. That's who we are. I want to share an analogy that I heard um, in a commentary while I was researching for this. Like, imagine you're on a beach, and as you're on the beach, you're sitting on the beach, the ground begins to shake. And you look out over the horizon, and you start to see a wave start to form. And as the wave starts rapidly approaching you, you realize that what you're seeing is a tsunami. The wave gets closer and closer, and as you get closer, you can kind of see how tall it is. It's as tall as a skyscraper, and it's coming at you at highway speeds. If you got hit by a Corolla at highway speeds, you'd be toast. Imagine a skyscraper. The worst part is there's nowhere to go. There's nothing you can do. You can't run. You can't hide. All you can do is wait because your death is certain. You are doomed. And just before the wave reaches the beach, just before you close your eyes for the last time, Jesus appears out of nowhere and stops the wave. It doesn't make any sense. You can't believe that this just happened, but you're saved. You're alive. You're still breathing. That is the story of David and Goliath. That is what Jesus did for us. The Goliath in our life is sin. The David in our life is Jesus. We were all doomed for death and destruction. It is easier to kill a LeBron James-sized Navy SEAL than it is to leave this world without committing a single sin. In fact, Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single last one of us. We are doomed. Our deaths were inevitable. The wages of sin is death. We are just waiting to die forever. That's what we were waiting for. That was our destiny. We were like the Israelites too, living our life, being controlled by sin, fearing sin with the same fear that we should have been fearing God Almighty with. We were like the Israelites, not being motivated by God, not living our lives for God, but living our lives for temporary, pointless, earthly things like money, power, prosperity, things that just fade away. That was us. And at the last second, and even though we didn't deserve it, and in a way that doesn't make any sense, Jesus defeated sin. And in a, we, it can't, we can't comprehend it. Jesus came to earth, took the form of a baby, lived a perfect, sinless life died as the perfect sacrifice, fulfilled the wages of sin. He died and he defeated it. He raised from the dead three days later. It doesn't make sense. It's easier to believe the David and Goliath story. It's so incomprehensible. The battle is over. We're on the winning team. If you've confessed that you are a Christian, if you've accepted Jesus, then you are on the winning team. The battle is over. But I want to end with a challenge. I want to end with one challenge. The battle is over. Jesus has defeated our sins once and for all. He's fulfilled the punishment of sins, fulfilled the wages. The wages have been paid. It's over. Jesus died on the cross already. It already happened. My challenge for you is when are you going to stop being the scared Israelite? 
when will you stop fearing sin with the same fear that you should be fearing God with? When are you going to stop being controlled by it? When are you going to stop living for pointless, earthly, temporary things like money, power, prosperity? We're on the winning team. The battle is over. The battle is won. Jesus won it for us. When are we going to shout in victory and know that what Jesus did for us on the cross is enough? We don't have to fear sin anymore. The wages have been paid. We don't have to live for earthly, temporary, pointless things anymore. We get to live for Jesus. Sin has been defeated. Jesus is alive. I want to challenge all of us, myself included, to let's all live like it. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for just this opportunity to receive from your word together. Lord, I pray that as we read this story of David and Goliath with a new set of eyes and a new set of ears and most importantly, a new heart, Lord, I pray that we know that you, what you did for us is enough, that we will be so consumed by thankfulness and awe and joy that we'll never stop being able to believe what you did for us because it's so amazing, Lord, that that will drive us to live differently. Lord, that we will know that the battle is over. We don't have to fear sin anymore. We don't have to fear sin like how we fear you anymore. We can just fear you. We don't have to live for earthly, temporary things anymore. We can live for you. I pray that myself and everyone here can just take up the challenge to live differently because of your sacrifice on the cross for us. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.